Thank you. So yeah, this is, you can hear me over there, okay, can you? If I, if I stop speaking up, then please just say something. Um, this is very much work in progress in that this is a kind of standalone piece that I I've been kind of mulling over for some time, so I'd be very interested to hear people's reactions to it and maybe even demolitions of it afterwards. That would be very helpful. Um, and it's, I kept sort of, was trying to think of a way to connect Ruskin to Gothic literature itself, and this is, this is that attempt. So, historicist criticism of Gothic literature frequently frames itself as a critique of so-called universalising psychological accounts of the same field. So Mark Manellis and Robert Miguel, for instance, exemplary practitioners of historicist criticism of 18th and 19th century Gothic respectively, charge their contemporaries with flattening or even complete, completely occluding the politics, the geography and the other forms of cultural specificity that abound in such literature. Further, psychological criticism of the Gothic also frequently courts and even embraces anachronism from the historicist perspective because of the implicit or explicit role it allots to Freudian models of mental life even when dealing with pre-Freudian authors and cultures. Moreover, the relationship between Gothic writing and psychoanalysis is in fact the opposite of that embodied in psychological Gothic criticism for these authors. Ellis observes that the Gothic repertoire in fact informs the psychoanalytic, not the other way around, and that the effect of psychoanalysis was to universalise the lessons of the Gothic novel. Ellis, Miguel, Jim Watt and others have thus sought to thoroughly challenge the universalising tendencies of psychological approaches to the Gothic in a series of impressive studies that recontextualise and repoliticise Gothic writing. This repoliticisation has concentrated to date, however, on the first wave of Gothic literature, that from approximately 1765 to 1815. While some short pieces have addressed later Victorian Gothic, Miguel's The Geography of Gothic Fiction is the only book-length study to historicise the second 19th century wave of Gothic writing, and that book was published in 1999. What this means is that many resonances and connotations of Victorian Gothic remain unidentified and unexamined, despite the existence of some detailed and diverse analyses. So it's one such area of Victorian Gothic politics that's the subject of this um, paper. And this area um, is important, firstly because it stands behind a fundamental shift in the category of the Gothic that takes place around the midpoint of the 19th century, um, and that has not been adequately explained to date. But secondly, this field of Gothic politics also offers the possibility of building a bridge between the psychological and historicist schools of Gothic criticism I've just sketched out. The political and intellectual context for Victorian Gothic writing I'm talking about is John Ruskin's highly influential and much fated account of the Gothic spirit from the central chapter of The Stones of Venice, The Nature of Gothic. This chapter, published in 1853 in the second volume of The Stones of Venice, has long been recognised as exerting a considerable influence over figures such as William Morris, over the architectural practices of Victorian Britain, and over political economic thought, especially after Ruskin uses it as the base on which to build a direct critique of laissez-faire economics in his 1862 work, Unto This Last. But the deep, thorough and sustained analysis of the concept of the Gothic Ruskin performs in the nature of Gothic has never been connected with Gothic, Gothic literature itself. This is a significant oversight, as this paper will hopefully demonstrate, one that has left the shifting politics of Victorian Gothic literature unrecognised and that has allowed the 18th century consistently negative associations of the Gothic to stand unchallenged in the very different world of Gothic literature after the midpoint of the 19th century. 
So in order to reconstruct the relevance of Ruskin's primarily architectural nature of Gothic to Victorian Gothic literature, this paper will be made up of three parts. First, it will examine Ruskin's analysis of the Gothic spirit in the Stones of Venice, contrasting this with 18th century Gothic associations, those from which Ruskin consciously departs. Second, it will contextualise Ruskin's geographical account of the Gothic spirit by contemporary developments in race theory and the literary phenomenon of urban Gothic. And thirdly, the essay will turn to two characteristic examples of Gothic fiction from the second half of the 19th century, Sheridan Lefanu's 1872 collection In a, Do- In a Glass Darkly and Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 novella Dr Jekyll and Miss Hyde in order to demonstrate the effects of Ruskin and his contemporaries' far-reaching realignment of the category of the Gothic. So, let's start with The Stones of Venice. The Stones of Venice, published in three volumes between 1851 and 1853, is a work of staggering breadth and detail. It performs a comprehensive analysis of the architectural history of Venice, in which as much attention is paid to the vast ideological transformations that stand behind the city's different epochs, as to the stylistic minutiae of the city's buildings and monuments. And in the work's central chapter, The Nature of Gothic, Ruskin powerfully and originally theorises the Gothic spirit, at the same time as arguing for the innateness of that spirit to the contemporary British mind. We will see presently how this chapter is part of a dramatic reassignment of the significance of the term Gothic, in comparison to the dominant 18th and early 19th century conceptions of this term. To begin with, though, I want to consider the ideas Ruskin associates with the term Gothic by considering his chapter's dramatic opening set piece. And I've put quite a lot of this opening set piece on the handout. To start off with, I won't be reading all this out, but I'll be picking out bits from it, so with number one to begin with. So in this opening set piece, Ruskin begins his portrait of the category of the Gothic um, with a broad brush by contrasting the geography and climate of southern Europe with their northern counterparts. The countries of the former are apparently laid like pieces of a golden pavement into the sea blue, glowing softly with terraced gardens and flowers heavy with frankincense, mixed among masses of laurel and orange and plumy palm. Northern Europe, by contrast, north of the Danube, the Loire and the Volga, for instance, is a land where the earth heaves into mighty masses of leaden rock and heathy moor and splinters into irregular and grisly islands amidst the northern seas. Such lands are also beaten by storm and chilled by ice drift and tormented by furious pulses of contending tide until the roots of the last forest fails from among the hill ravines and the hunger of the north wind bites their peaks into barrenness. Ruskin's object in crafting this dramatic and panoramic set piece is the identification and isolation of the distinct styles of architecture that reflect and complement these vastly different regions. But it is also to delineate the characteristic human temperaments that produce this architecture and that match the continent's differing qualities. Thus, not only do the animal species across this diverse spectrum of land vary from glistening serpents and birds arrayed, in pu- birds arrayed in purple and scarlet to the shaggy coverings and dusky plumage of the northern fauna, but the region's human inhabitants also display a comparable variety. The southern European is thus represented, I think this is in number two in the handout, again just picked out, um, the southern European is thus represented by his untroubled homage to the ceaseless sunshine and cloudless sky and by his smoothing with soft sculpture the jasper pillars of his buildings. The northern figure is handled in parallel but opposite terms as he smites an uncouth animation out of the rocks um, which he has torn from among the moss of the moorland. Ruskin's interest in and concentration on the northern modes of building of being mean that he dwells on the northern European temperament at much greater length than he does on that of southern Europe. 
It also means that his portrait of the former mindset expands well beyond the bounds of architectural creativity to become a generalised depiction of northern mental life. After characterising the northern builder as he who smites uncouth animations out of barren hills, such constructions are qualified in the following terms. This is still number two, I think. They are instinct with a work of, the, of an imagination as wild and wayward as the northern sea. They are full of wolfish life and fierce as the winds that beat and changeful as the clouds that shade them. The terms of these statements are notably double-edged. The northern imagination is, for Ruskin, wild and wayward, as if it lacks focus and concentration. Likewise, it is changeful and fierce as the clouds and winds, as if so crushed by the climate around it that it can only passively echo that climate's vagaries. But these terms are immediately qualified by Ruskin as in no sense of degradation. There is apparently no reproach in this, the very next sentence has it, but all dignity and honourableness. It is in this sense that the phrase full of wolfish life encapsulates Ruskin's conception of the northern European mind, at this stage in his chapter at least. The northern temperament is ferocious, persistent, intimately associated with the trying and hard geography of the region, but also noble, intelligent and sublime in its persistence, resilience and creativity. What Ruskin does with this sketch of the northern European temperament is to attach it first and foremost to the term Gothic. The Gothic is apparently the mode of creation that naturally stems from and that manifests the northern European mindset. By means of the sustained and detailed analysis that constitutes the majority of the nature of, the nature of Gothic, Ruskin thus presents wild, wolf, wolfish northern spirits as the lifeblood of Gothic architecture wherever it is found. And in comparison to this powerful bestial ferocity, Ruskin casts the southern European temperament as passive, mentally all but undeveloped, and therefore servile. Architecture of the Greek style, for example, thus expresses the considerable knowledge and power of the Greek master workman, but the downtrodden servitude and imbecility of the ordinary Greek builder, workman, and citizen. The nobleness of northern Gothic architecture resides in its embodiment at every level of the imaginative and spiritual complexity of the northern builder, Gothic buildings thus bespeak the cultural success of the Christian societies in which they are constructed for Ruskin, because those societies allow their workers' imaginations and temperaments to both develop and flourish. Christianity for Ruskin has recognised in small things, as well as great, the individual value of every soul. Christian, Gothic, northern architecture, thus out of fragments full of imperfection, for the individual worker or citizen is by no means perfect, indulgently raises up stately and unaccusable holes. Those are Ruskin term, Ruskin's terms. Greek and other southern buildings, by contrast, express and embody the severely limited faculties, the stunted humanity promoted by their societies. So obviously this is the political economic edge of Ruskin's thoughts, that is using architecture to define successful societies and their um, sort of class relations. These judgments, for our purposes here, represent a significant change of tack in Gothic thought when its development is considered from the 18th century. Because for Edmund Burke and the romantic practitioners of the Gothic who followed the aesthetics of his philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas in the sublime and beautiful, 1757, the Gothic mode allowed, above all, for an engagement with negative experiences and with a dark and troubling side of human mental and moral life. Burke's sublime is thus exemplified by an encounter with an object or a physical force that can annihilate its individual contemplator, but of course from a safe distance that renders the event predominantly imaginative or mental. For Matthew Lewis and Anne Radcliffe, the two most successful writers of Gothic fiction in that genre's apex, the 1790s, 
the Gothic likewise represented a confrontation of annihilation and extreme moral depravity. Thus Ambrosio, the eponymous villain of Lewis's The Monk of 1796, commits the most gruesome and depraved of crimes, which the novel narrates in shocking detail, only to be, only to be tricked and left to die horribly by the devil himself. Apologies for spoiling the plot of that excellent novel. <laughs> it's probably still worth reading. In other words, the novel's reader experiences an encounter with the most degraded and troubling features of human life, but from the safe distance fiction provides. What these examples point to is the comprehensive and consistent association between the Gothic mode and negative mental and physical experiences in the 18th century. And of course, this association is only strengthened by early 19th century works like Charlotte Dacre's The Floyer of 1806 and John Polidori's The Vampire of 1819, with their devilish antagonists dragging these text protagonists into vortices of degradation and decline. And it remains largely unchallenged as late as 1847, when Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights places Heathcliff's ruthless, ruthless nihilism at the heart of that character's Gothic negativity. What we are witnessing in Ruskin's 1853 text stands in stark contrast to these precedents. For, Ru for Ruskin's theory of the societies that produce Gothic architecture renders the Gothic mode a physical embodiment and guarantee of the democratic conception of human worth promoted by those societies. The Gothic's complexity, wolfish life, and fierce energetic imaginativeness are thus markers of human freedom, development, and vitality for Ruskin. Yet these qualities were formerly signifiers of human degradation and depravity in Gothic fiction. Radcliffe, Lewis, and Dacre effectively warn against the unrestricted development of human passion and implicitly advocate obedience to society's dictates. As Franco Moretti outlines, Gothic literature is illiberal in a deep sense. To think for oneself, to follow one's own interests, these are the real dangers that this literature wants to exercise. I'm not saying with these comments that Ruskin is rad radically anti-authoritarian or an advocate of unleashing human libidinal and aggressive energy to court, but one must recognise that Ruskin's handling of the Gothic represents a transformation of that category from a, from a gateway to human negativity and transgression and from an encounter with annihilation in the abstract into an expression of human completeness and a demonstration of the democratic cultural politics of a society. In this sense, Ruskin both reconceptualises the Gothic in positive, noble terms and associates it with the Victorian liberalist projects of emancipating a society's citizens from the restrictive and stultifying effects of laissez-faire capitalism. Of course, Ruskin is still focusing his energies primarily on the Gothic style of architecture, but because Gothic fiction from Horace Walpole onwards closely associates moral and physical negativity with the intricate pointed arch style of building that Ruskin historicizes and examines in detail, such a focus does not preclude the nature of Gothic from pertaining to the concept of the, of the Gothic more broadly. Walpole's Castle of Otranto of 1764 begins the trend of associating dark passions and sublime experiences with architectural structures because his novella makes significant use of the labyrinthine castle in which it is set. And Walpole's own home, Strawberry Hill in Twickenham, also exemplifies this connection, as do the monastic subterranean vaults of the monk, the prisons of the Inquisition in Radcliffe's The Italian of 1797, and the ancient and ruined stately pile to which the vampiric antagonist escapes in James Malcolm Rymer's Penny Blood, Varney the Vampire of 1845-7. And if I can give you one piece of advice, Mr. Lakeway, don't read that novel, <laughs> the longest novel written in English, supposedly, but it's appalling. <laughs> so these examples and their countless equivalents construct and then sustain the connection between Gothic negativity and architectural complexity and intricacy right, into, right up until the composition of the Stones events. 
now that we've identified the liberal and democratic associations, what's going to attach us to the category of the Gothic, we're ready to look at how the nature of the Gothic expands and solidifies its initial portrait of the Gothic spirit. Peruskin does this towards the end of his chapter, once he has performed a close architectural analysis that substantiates his notion of Gothic freedom. This further exploration of the Northern Gothic temperament is expressed as a definition of Gothic building's vital principle. Here, the essential spirit of Northern European life is overtly celebrated, again a clear departure from earlier negative associations of the Gothic, and expressed as finding its fulfilment in the intricacies of Gothic building. This is number three on the handout, which I'll read, read in full this time. <coughs> it is that strange disquietude of the Gothic spirit that is its greatness, that restlessness of the dreaming mind that wanders hither and thither among the niches and flickers feverishly around the pinnacles and frets and fades in labyrinthine knots and shadows along wall and roof, and yet is not satisfied, nor shall be satisfied. The Greek could stay in his triglyph furrow and be at peace, but the work of Gothic art is fretwork still, and it can neither rest in nor from its labour, but must pass on sleeplessly until its love of change shall be pacified forever in the change that must come alike on them that wake and them that sleep. Burke's sublime cast cast the encounter with extreme negativity as a premonition of death. Ruskin similarly here renders the restless energy of the Gothic, its love of change, as a foreshadowing of the change that must come alike on all. But yet it is striking in this passage that such a premonition of death is also couched in both celebratory and quotidian terms. The Burkean sublime, or the radical evil, evil of the monk, for example, are always cast as extraordinary standout events in the, in the life of their imagined contemplators, here, however, the strange disquietude of the Gothic spirit is at once its greatness and its normal state. The Gothic mind is disquieted as its essential condition. It experiences restlessness and fret constantly and finds these states of being exemplified and embodied in the labyrinthine fretwork of Gothic building. Ruskin's connection of the psychological state of fret and the architectural term fretwork is thus something like a serious pun the intricate decorative features that constitute fretwork become, in Ruskin's hands, the manifestation of wolfish, troubled complexity and disquietude. This passage is therefore an overt celebration, and significantly a normalisation, of precisely the dark, troubled consciousness that features so heavily in Gothic fiction up until this moment. And because Ruskin has directly associated the northern Gothic spirit with the British climate, geography and people, both historically and in the present, this passage, and the nature of Gothic more, more generally, must be understood to redefine Gothic negativity, disquietude, and feverish restlessness as the honourable and admirable condition of being for Ruskin's readers themselves. As a whole, therefore, the nature of Gothic reorientates contemporary Gothic discourse in three distinct ways. First, as we have seen, Ruskin ennobles and makes positive and indeed honourable the mindset that was consistently villainised, demonised, or at least handled in negative terms in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And Gothic fiction is the main site of this mindset's demonisation. Second, Ruskin powerfully associates the Gothic temperament with Victorian liberalism's, liberalism's project for the expansion of consciousness, even in the teeth of stultifying and alienating social and economic systems. This is one of the primary and best remembered concerns in the nature of Gothic, although it's one I only touched on in my analysis. And third, Ruskin's geographical and materialist framework for the nature of Gothic renders the Gothic spirit innate to British consciousness in the present as much as in the past, and the predominant and constant feature of our shared normal everyday psychology.
We must now turn to the two historical contexts necessary for understanding the significance of Ruskin's powerful reimagining and realignment of the category of the Gothic. These are firstly the developments in racial theory that take place in the years leading up to Ruskin's Stones of Venice, especially those enunciated by I.A. Blackwell, and secondly, the simultaneous development of, a, of the literary genre that has come to be known as urban Gothic, the mode of writing exemplified by Charles Dickens' 1853 novel Bleak House. By situating Ruskin's Gothic thoughts within these fields, we will be able to pinpoint a cluster of ideas that considerably reshape Gothic fiction in the second half of the 19th century. Now, this, this section of the paper I'm going to just sum, summarise by talking, it, talking you through it because there isn't time for me to um, read it all. And I've put some of the quotations um, from the Blackwell part of this context on the handout at number four and five. Basically, the, the context that, um, that one needs to understand Ruskin, Ruskin's definition of the Gothic or realignment of the Gothic is that throughout the 1830s and 40s, really peaking in the 1840s, there is um, a development in um, sort of racial theory enunciated by someone like Blackwell, but also expressed by people like Carlyle, Thomas Arnold, Disraeli, and Kingsley. And what all these figures do, and what um, Blackwell's doing in these two quotations, is defining the fall of Rome as a kind of rejuvenation of European and global politics, therefore defining the Gothic Teutonic peoples that overthrew Rome as possessing a more kind of urgent and powerful um, energy and sort of style of being than late, than late Rome possessed. And by doing so, they also define um, the whole of Northern European, uh, so all Northern European, Northern European people as racially Teutonic and as therefore inheriting exactly these um, sort of states of mind and powers of being that are the sort of supposedly the things that hold sway over the world. So in um, number five on the handout, for instance, this ends with an extremely patriotic um, sort of summary saying, "'Tis a pardonable vanity to record the fact that England, matchless in the mechanical arts, irresistible in arms, sweeping from the surface of the ocean the fleets of every rival nation that dares dispute her maritime supremacy, is now in possession of that heritage whose succession we have traced through cognate races and will, we trust, long retain it. And this succession is the German Gothic succession that is Teutonic blood. So in other words, Rus without, without naming these ideas explicitly, Ruskin is alluding to the, in the 1840s, very widespread belief in sort of Anglo-Saxon Teutonic heritage that makes the nature of Gothic actually a kind of um, racial account of Britain's supremacy as well. And interestingly, in this quote from Blackwell, at number five, he also takes up this same kind of aerial perspective a third of the way down when he says, and when we turn our attention to a small island on the northwestern coast of Europe, we behold a nation formed by the general blending of Saxonic and Scandinavian tribes, etc. It's this sort of aerial geographical view that defines racial Teutonicness is one that's shared with Ruskin. And the, the second context that's in this section that I'll just briefly outline is that of the urban Gothic, which is probably a bit... Um, a bit better known, which is that Gothic writing, Gothic fiction um, across the 18, 1830s and 40s again becomes kind of domesticated. So the settings of Gothic novels, like things like Wuthering Heights, are very much in the present and are very much in Britain, whereas formerly those novels were, Gothic novels were in Catholic countries or medieval elsewhere. So the Gothic is domesticated in that sense. 
But importantly, those novels, like Bleak House, still maintain the exact narrative systems of earlier Gothic. And that is, so they define, um, what well, they use the Gothic to talk about repressive societies and sort of Britain's legal and class institutions become that repressive society in Bleak House. And they therefore sort of dramatise the types of qualities that might um, annul that repression, might sort of liberate society. So they have very clear heroes and villains in that sense. So in Bleak House you have vampire figures like what's the name, Voles, the kind of conspirator figure, um, Tolkien Horn, which is like Scudoni in um, the Italian, and therefore the very clear heroes who embody virtue and generosity that would deal with oppression. So the, goth the Gothic is domestic domesticated by that kind of fiction, but still, um, also importantly, still shackles to kind of the repressive structures of previous 18th century Gothic. And Ruskin is therefore the meeting point for these ideas. It's domestication, <coughs> but it's ennoblement in its Teutonic sense as well. Okay, so, with that context in mind, now we can understand Ruskin in those ways, we can move beyond mid-century thought and start tracing the effects of Ruskin and his contemporaries' reconceptualization of the Gothic across the second half of the 19th century. Yet we should not expect in this process um, an exact match between Ruskin's celebration of Gothic consciousness in the Stones of Venice and the minute details of a genre as flexible and multifaceted as the Gothic. Nevertheless, what we're about to witness is a clear shift in later 19th century Gothic fiction away from models of the repressive society or the rare encounter with sublime evil, those narrative templates that remain largely unaltered from Walpole to Dickens. In place of these motifs, we will find a thorough normalisation of Gothic consciousness, an ennoblement and near celebration of, of such states reminiscent of Ruskin's thought and, again in line, in line with the nature of Gothic and mid-century racial thought, a repeated treatment of troubled, complex, dark states of being as our shared constant condition. So to begin this process of identifying post-Ruskinian Gothic literature, um, I want to consider two famous works of Gothic fiction from the 1870s and 80s. These are Sheridan Farnu's In Glass Darkly and Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So let's start with In Glass Darkly, which is a collection of five Gothic and supernatural short stories now most remembered for its final vampire narrative, Carmilla. Despite the success of Carmilla, Lefanu's stories in this collection in fact cover a range of diverse topics and are made up, a, made up of a genuine assortment of types of narrative. All the stories are united, however, by Lefanu's framing device for the collection, which presents each narrative as a selection from the correspondence and medical notes of the recently deceased Dr. Martin Hazelius. Hazelius, introduced by the volume's opening statements as a figure of considerable medical and scientific authority, is highly significant for the present analysis. This is because he provides Lefanu with a means of recasting the partly conventional Gothic tropes and motifs of his narratives in Ruskinian terms. For Hazelius's authority in his field serves to normalise, naturalise, and indeed ennoble the altered states of consciousness encountered by his patients and presented um, through this volume. So this recasting of earlier Gothic ideas begins extremely early on in the final story of the sorry, the first story of the collection, Green Tea, as Hazelius sets out the scientific and met metaphysical beliefs that inform his medical work. So this is number six on the handout. I may remark that when I hear speak of medical science, I do so as I hope someday to see it more generally understood in a much more comprehensive sense 
than its generally material treatment would warrant. I believe the entire natural world is but the ultimate expression of that spiritual world from which and in which alone it has its life. I believe that the essential man is a spirit and that the spirit is an organised substance, but is different in point of material from what we ordinary, ordinarily understand by matter as light or electricity is. That the material body is, in its most literal sense, a vesture, and death consequently no interruption of the living man's existence, but simply his extrication from the natural body, a process which commences at the moment of what we term death, and the completion of which, at furthest a few days later, is the resurrection in power. By rendering these events, sorry, by rendering these statements, the studied and solid judgments of an already highly lauded individual, and by having them presented just after this quotation as a too generally unrecognised state of facts, Lefanu is transforming the tentative surmises and ghostly possibilities of earlier Gothic writing into something like a stable and reliable ground. In Radcliffe's work, as in Bleak House, any supernatural happenings and possibilities are resolved by the narrative's conclusion as the excited misapprehensions of the characters. The supernatural is thus simply an effect of the play of conflicting human agents or of excited self-deception. Even in what criticism of 18th century Gothic denominates the male Gothic, exemplified by the monk, supernatural events are, ex are experienced only as deviations from quotidian reality and are associated exclusively with extreme human evil. A text like Wuthering Heights stands somewhere between these possibilities because its supernatural or otherworldly events are neither proved or disproved by the narrative's human, non-omniscient narrators. Here in Lefanu's writing, by contrast, Azalius is used to introduce and to validate a very different metaphysical scenario. This is one where the spiritual world and the natural world are equally real, and one in which these realms are so close that the latter embodies the former and seems ready to disclose it at any moment. One should note here, too, that the potential validity of Hazelius's system is also augmented by his allusion to Christianity through the idea of resurrection. I note that in my phrasing here, it sounds like I sort of believe what Hazelius is saying. That, that's not the case, but I'm saying this is presented as sort of factually plausible in lots of ways. If the vesture of the natural world is thrown off in death, and if one's spiritual continuance takes place a few days later as a resurrection in power, then the implication is that Christ's crucifixion and resurrection were famous instances of this same set of scientific spiritual facts. Hazelius's system is, in other words, not at, all, not at all blasphemous, and in fact a belated realisation of the reality that originates Christian thought. Lefanu's design for In a Glass Darkly, as might be expected from this early introduction to Hazelius's system, is to use the individual narratives of the collection to exemplify, validate and prove this set of medical facts. Thus, Green Tea, this story, dramatises the close proximity of spiritual and natural worlds by examining an instance of the former spilling over into the latter. And because the fictional editor of the collection clarifies that Hazelius's papers contain over 230 similar cases to that explored in Green Tea, this story serves very clearly to normalise such slippages between the natural and the spiritual and to cast Gothic experiences as so common as to be almost everyday occurrences. The slippage at the heart of Green Tea takes the form of the uncanny and gothic appearance for the text protagonist, the Reverend Mr Jennings, of a small perfectly black monkey with glowing red eyes that follows him wherever he goes. This animal's near-constant presence begins during a period of intense intellectual work on Mr Jennings's part and soon interferes so aggressively in the character's duties and engagements that he's driven to seek the assistance of Dr Hazelius. 
Hazelius' diagnosis, in fact, only hinted at to Jennings himself and given in full in his correspondence after Jennings has taken his own life in despair of the situation. Again, I'm sorry, I ruined another plot. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't realise this was going to happen. Um, so Hazelius' diagnosis is that the veil of flesh, or the screen that separates the natural from the spiritual worlds, is for Jennings a little out of repair, and sights and sounds are transmitted from the latter to the former. This is a situation brought about by the protagonist's overindulgence in green tea, which apparently disturbs the equilibrium and quality of one of the brain's spiritual, though not immaterial, fluids. This causes the mind, in Hazelius' words, to find strange bedfellows, and the mortal and immortal to prematurely make acquaintance. As well as exemplifying and normalising Hazelius' suggestions concerning the proximity of the spiritual and natural worlds, these events in Lefanu's handling demonstrate the accuracy of Emmanuel Swedenborg's suggestions concerning the spiritual world, which both protagonists of Green Tea are shown reading early in the narrative. Swedenborg has it in some of the passages from Arcana Celestia, highlighted by Jennings and reread by Hazelius, that there are with every man at least two evil spirits, which are from the hells, and which hate man with a deadly hatred. In this manner, the events of Lefanu's narrative are profoundly gothic, hellish, and evil, and the import of Hazelius's casebook of 230 hellish incarnations like Jennings's is that the darkest events imaginable in human life are in fact everyday common phenomena. What we're seeing here, therefore, is a very clear normalization of gothic consciousness and a way of writing about such states of mind so as to render them the constant condition of a wide constituency of society's members. This normalization is so complete that it seems like something of an overstatement to describe Jennings and others' visions as hellish incarnations, even though the text allusions to Swedenborg make, make this phrase factually accurate. The effect of the family's framework is in fact to calmly medicalize such events, so events such as those taking place in Jennings' life, and to render them matters so ordinary as to be simply in need of diligent medical attention. Furthermore, because the veil or screen between this realm and the next seems notably fragile or penetrable in Hesaeus' analysis, Lefanu's collection serves, again quite calmly and rationally, to position every one of its readers as surprisingly close to a hellish and ever-present spirituality. One should also note in Lefanu's Hesaeus' paradigm that something like a Ruskinian ennoblement of Gothic consciousness has also taken place. For the figures of Swedenborg and Hesaeus himself are configured by Green Tea and the subsequent narratives of the collection as seeing more accurately and truthfully into the state of the world than their conventionally materialist medical counterparts or than ordinary lay people. And thus to experience the intense Gothic hellish consciousness that Jennings experiences is also to be cast beyond conventional rationality and to understand the significance and accuracy of Hazelius and Swedenborg's writings. It's for this reason that Jennings introduced himself to Hazelius as a reader and an admirer of his essays on metaphysical medicine, and for this reason that his underlinings in Swedenborg pick out what Lefanu's narratives configure as baleful, gothic, but ordinary truths. Gothic consciousness is therefore an encounter with the most profound features of quotidian experience in Lefanu's In a Glass Darkly. It, it is a glimpse behind the veil between this world and the next that is being encountered by large numbers of people in the British and European societies alluded to, both both in Green Tea and throughout the collection. So Hazelius himself is German, his initial correspondence that he's writing this story to is Belgian, and the narratives of the collection take place in Britain, Ireland, France, and Austria. So the Gothic, therefore, now pertains to and intimately accompanies every part of society in Lefanu's vision. 
It is no longer limited to a sublime elsewhere, as in Burke and as in certain strands of Gothic writing, or to repressive societies alone, as texts as diverse as the Castle of Otranto and Bleak House had it. Rather, Gothic consciousness is an intensification of normal experience, one we are always on the verge of experiencing, and one applicable to everyone, or at least everyone in the broadly Teutonic societies of Northern Europe. This situation, in which Gothic consciousness is our racially and temperamentally shared quotidian condition, must also be recognised to reconfigure the necessary narrative structures of Gothic writing. For whereas Dickens, the Brontes, Reimer and countless other practitioners of the Gothic up till 1853 all made use of those narrative structures and tropes inherited from the likes of Walpole, Lewis and Radcliffe, the sublime and evil anomaly, the heroic embodiment of virtue, the repressive but anomalous society, and the Fanu's Gothic narratives require no such oppositional constructions. His plot for Green Tea, by contrast, sets out a metaphysical situation through his alias and Swedenborg, demonstrates its, its validity through Jennings and through other cases, including that of Van Loo himself, and thus demonstrates our shared Gothic condition. His narrative is thus in no sense oppositional, othering, or a means of socio-political critique. The Gothic has instead become a vehicle for describing and dissecting consciousness itself, the consciousness that characterises human life in our society and in the Teutonic societies in our northern European proximity. And because a similar set of statements could be made for Lefano's other narratives in Inner Glass Darkly, and for the example of Stevenson's Gothic writing we will conclude this analysis with presently, this modification to Gothic discourse is reasonably consistent in the wake of Ruskin's The Nature of Gothic. The ghost narrative, Mr Justice Harbottle, for example, the third in Lefano's collection, is likewise framed not as an occasion for a rational hero to dispel the illusions of ghostly hauntings, as it might have been in Radcliffe's hands, Neither is it an instance of faulty legal institutions configuring human lives in problematic ways, again a, a trope one finds in Bleak House. Rather, in Lefanu's Ruskinian vision, it is another instance of an opening of the interior sense, so that the spirit world's constant simultaneity with our own is experienced by the narrative's eponymous protagonist. Further, in this case, this type of opening of spiritual sight is also represented as contagious in his alias's terms, so soon as the spirit action has has established itself in the case of one patient, its developed energy begins to radiate more or less effectually upon others. Because this situation is, again, simply factual in the Fanu's presentation, the plot of Mr Justice Harbottle can admit of no hero to save the day or to prevent a gothic hellish outcome. Instead, Judge Harbottle dies in direct accordance with the prediction made in his gothic dream, and the Fanu's narrative ends, almost pathetically, with the spirit world dominating that of the living. If we turn now, and finally, you might please to know, to Robert Louis Stevenson's slighter later Gothic novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, of 1886, we will find a comparable set of resonances attributed to Gothic consciousness. For Stevenson's narrative also normalises the Gothic as our shared condition, and does so in a manner that connects that category to a Ruskinian broadening of consciousness. The design of Stevenson's novella again departs from the work of Dickens and his predecessors, and again follows that which we isolated in Lefanu's writing. Jacqueline Hyde thus deploys no hero figure to save the day or to avert the gothic doom of the text protagonist. Instead, in the same mould as Green Tea and Mr Justice Harbottle, the narrative concludes with Dr Jekyll succumbing to the dark forces his experimentation has unleashed and dying twice in both of his identities. 
The novella obviously alludes implicitly to the novel that in part anticipates its plot, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein of 1818, but yet it is crucial to the import of Stevenson's novella to note that whereas the supernatural doubling that is Victor Frankenstein's act of creation takes place far from Britain and in, in the sublime landscapes of Alpine Europe, Stevenson's own narrative take, takes place entirely in contemporary London. Once again, therefore, the association of Gothic events with other societies and other geographies is very clearly replaced in this post-urban Gothic and post-Buskinian text with an intimate connection between such happenings and the text here and now. This transformation is also complemented and bolstered by the fact that <coughs> Frankenstein's act of creation involved physically building a new consciousness using the likeness of the human form. Jekyll's doubling, by contrast, takes the form of looking inside of himself and seeing with a new precision the complexities of quotidian consciousness. The central uncanny insight of Jekyll and Hyde is thus that man is not truly one, but truly two. What the novella's action claims to uncover, in other words, is that we are all double, that we are all in part monstrous as a normal shared condition, and therefore that the intense uncanny consciousness that accompanies gothic events and insights is awaiting anyone who cares to glimpse beneath the surface of quotidian rationality and sociability. Such a suggestion stands very close to the import of green tea and of the funny Cezalius framework more broadly. The impinging of hellish evil spirits onto the normal material world was the Gothic insight offered by Hesalius and Swedenborg and confirmed by the narratives of Inigar Starkley. In Jekyll and Hyde, similarly, Jekyll is appalled by Hyde's existence precisely because he represents the potential dominion of hell over the everyday world. So this is number seven on the handout. He thought of Hyde for all his energy and life as of something not only hellish but inorganic. This was the shocking thing, that the slime of the pit seemed to utter cries and voices, that the amorphous dust gesticulated and sinned, that what was dead and had no shape should usurp the offices of life. And this again, that the insurgent horror was knit to him closer than a wife, closer than an eye, lay caged in his flesh, where he heard it mutter and felt it struggle to be born, and at every hour of weakness, and in the confidences of slumber, prevailed against him and deposed him out of life. Because in green tea the evil spirits, glimpsed by figures like Jennings, remain distinct from their human objects of interest, this passage in Jekyll and Hyde can be seen as an intensification further along the path set out by Ruskin's Gothic analysis of the centrality of Gothic consciousness to human life. Hyde stands inside Jekyll, caged in his flesh, closer than an eye, and waiting to get out at any opportunity. He represents an uncanny prosthetic self, always within and alive, but paradoxically also inorganic, hellish, and amorphous, a confusion registered at the level of the passage's pronouns, as Bobby Gold notes. As in Lefano's writing, it is only by tampering with the chemical composition of his own body that Jekyll can unleash his demonic other. But this passage and the novella nevertheless serve as insights into the constant condition of human life in Stevenson's vision. The proximity of every individual to Jekyll's state is underlined at the beginning of his final narrative by his observation that many men would have even blazoned such irregularities as he was guilty of. In other words, Gothic, ex Gothic experience and dark complexity lie closer to the surface for others than they do for Jekyll. While Stevenson's narrative maps in these senses onto Ruskinian terms and onto the Ruskinian turn in Gothic fiction that takes place after mid-century, it must be noted that the novella also represents something like a critical engagement with Ruskin's association of the Gothic 
um, with the Victorian liberal project. This is because Jekyll's unleashing of Hyde may be presented as a broadening of consciousness and an eruption of new freedoms denied to civilised man, but these effects are also very clearly problematic in the context Stevenson sets up. Jekyll's description of his first discovery and emancipation of Hyde thus jarringly intermingles the liberation, freedom and freshness of life in that form with images of disorder, transgression and intoxication. This is number eight on the handout, um, which I won't read out. The consciousness of evil and of being tenfold more wicked than previously is in this passage rendered a crucial component of Hyde's new freedom, which he describes just before this quotation as an incredibly sweet sensation. This event thus represents an unleashing of human potential and a liberation for the cosseted and limited consciousness Jekyll embodies. It's for this reason that Jekyll um, presently portrays Hyde as an intensification of himself and as so natural and human as to be a kind of refinement of his previous mixed identity. But this freedom and purity also threaten to destroy or at least damage the solidity of conventional society as Hyde's increasingly depraved and then murderous rampages have, have already made very clear by this final moment in the narrative. In this sense, Ruskin's contention that the heart of northern Gothic consciousness there lies a wolfish life and a dark complexity is supported but handled critically by Stevenson. Jekyll and Hyde presents the dark heart to contemporary consciousness as an expansion on the rigid sociality of Victorian life, but the novella also casts this expanded consciousness as so wolfish as to be very definitely bestial and destructive. Stevenson thus allows no room for an association between dark complexity and honourable nobility, another connection we saw Ruskin and also Blackwell make. Here, by contrast, Gothic consciousness is ignoble to the point of barbarism. This critical engagement with Ruskin's Gothic paradigm does not, of course, negate the identification of a Ruskinian turn in Gothic fiction that I've been arguing for here. On the contrary, even Stevenson's wary investigation of the ennoblement of Gothic consciousness performed by the nature of Gothic demonstrates the influence Ruskin and his contemporaries exert on Gothic discourse in the second half of the 19th century. In the worlds of Lefano's and Stevenson's Gothic alike, quotidian consciousness is still characterised by a strange disquietude and by a powerful non-human bestial energy. Jekyll and Hyde even deploys Ruskin's key term, disquietude, at the moment Hyde is first encountered by the narrative. Further evidence of the Ruskinian turn in Gothic discourse, in Gothic discourse takes the form, as we have seen, of the clearly distinct narrative structures and politics of Gothic fiction before and after the publication of The Nature of Gothic. Post-Ruskinian Gothic thus becomes a means to investigate the dark complexities of human consciousness much more pressingly than the identity politics or religious structures of a given society. Even when earlier narrative paradigms or tropes are resurrected in late 19th century Gothic fiction, as they are in Bram Stoker's Dracula of 1897, for example, such heroic narratives still dwell at great length on the kind of contemplative consciousness and the liminal desires accessed in the Gothic encounter. Dracula is, in this sense, a threat to the states of mind of his victims who find themselves cast imaginatively and spiritually into the complex physical environments that surround them and who subsequently sink into states of dark meditative inertia. The racial subtext of Dracula also adheres to the racialization of Gothic consciousness we witnessed in the writing of Blackwell, Carlyle and Arnold. And Stoker's Van Helsing is connectedly a direct heir to Herzelius, a link solidified by the considerable shared ground between Carmilla and Dracula. 
more representative of this aspect of the post-Ruskinian Gothic mode might be Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray of 1890, which again lets the Gothic doom fall on its protagonist without, a, without the intervention of any heroic agent of virtue, and which again uses its plot as a means to consider the state of human consciousness in civilised society. The shared resonances between Wilde's and Stoker's texts and those works of Lefano and Stevenson that we've examined in more detail in this paper thus demonstrate the adjacency of Gothic fiction in the last decades of the 19th century with the terms and concerns of Ruskin's 1853 reassessment of the category of the Gothic. This closeness reveals the extent to which the 1840s and the early 1850s represent a key moment, a watershed, in the changing associations and resonances of the term Gothic across the long 19th century. Pre-Ruskinian Gothic, even during the phenomenon of urban Gothic identified by the likes of Pritchard and McGall, holds much in common with 18th century fiction of that genre, especially in terms of its narrative structures and political import. Post-Ruskinian Gothic, by contrast, moves away from political critique of the repressive society in order to address and explore psychology and consciousness in scientific and metaphysical terms. This shift is accompanied by a normalisation and at least a partial ennoblement of Gothic consciousness that has its origins in the racial theory of the 1840s. The implicit import of works like Inner Glass Darkly and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is therefore to demonstrate that the breadth and dark, fretful complexity of contemporary Anglo-Saxon and Teutonic consciousness. For by doing so, these works celebrate the imaginative and intellectual freedom that Ruskin, Blackwell and their contemporaries make the condition of successful societies. So, one more paragraph. I want to conclude this analysis, now that we've explored post-Ruskinian Gothic, by returning to the trends of recent Gothic criticism with which we began this paper. For we are now in a position to make some useful observations, it seems to me, on the apparent opposition between historicist and psychological criticism of the Gothic that has emerged in recent scholarship. The identification of Ruskin's considerable influence on Gothic writing after 1853 has illuminated a subsequent concentration in Gothic fiction on questions and issues of psychology, it's for this reason that the dominant form of the post-Ruskinian text we've been focusing on is that of the medical case study, a form that plays a large part in Dracula and holds some influence over Dorian Gray as well. This shift from the pre-Ruskinian politics of the repressive society to after 1853, a Ruskinian normalisation of Gothic states of mind enables us to see that the conflict in Gothic criticism between historical and psychological readings of Gothic texts seems to have its origin in the differing agendas of Gothic fiction across this watershed. It is thus not strictly the case, as McGill and Ellis contend, that the historicist approach simply has more validity than the psychological. Rather, these different schools of criticism seem to take their intellectual starting points, and therefore their hermeneutic paradigms, from differing moments in the development of Gothic fiction. Thus, the historicists, up to and including McGill, base the vast majority of their analysis on Gothic writing before 1853. The psychologists, by contrast, are almost exclusively focusing their attention, even if they dip into earlier texts, on later 19th century and 20th century writings. For the psychological career of Gothic fiction very definitely continues beyond texts like Jekyll and Hyde and Dracula. What we have witnessed in this essay is therefore the meeting point between two quite different fields. This means that the existence of two mutually exclusive styles of criticism of Gothic writing is in fact quite appropriate and very much warranted by the development of Gothic discourse. To discount the validity of psychological criticism of the Gothic is thus to misunderstand the development of Gothic writing itself. 
what the present analysis is affected, in other words, is a historicization of Gothic discourse's psychological turn. Thank you very much. <laughs>